Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today are our colleagues, Matthew Feeney and John Samples. Matthew is the director of Cato's Project on Emerging Technologies, and John is vice president at Cato and director of the Center for Representative Government. He was recently named to the oversight board for Facebook and Instagram, something we'll, we'll get to later in the show. Uh, but I'd like to start with Matthew. Um, and John, of course, you can chime in. Why are big tech companies censoring conservative viewpoints? Well, I suppose it depends who you ask. Um, I, I would say that, uh, and, and as I've written at the Cato blog uh, and elsewhere, that, that I'm actually somewhat skeptical of uh, a lot of the claims that you hear from conservative activists that their uh, their accounts or their views and their content uh, are being systematically taken down by so-called big tech. When people say big tech, they usually mean uh, these California-based companies such as uh, Twitter, Facebook, Google, YouTube. And uh, despite the fact that I might find a lot of these claims unconvincing, I nonetheless think that uh, it's interesting that these claims are being so uh, so pronounced these days. Um, many of the listeners will be familiar with claims made by uh, Prager U, uh, run by the conservative commentator Dennis Prager. But we, we shouldn't ignore the fact that uh, these complaints have been leveled from Capitol Hill and the White House. Uh, the president is certainly... Uh, mentioned that he's upset about how Silicon Valley is, is treating conservatives. Uh, and there are also prominent senators, such as Senator, uh, Senators Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, who are concerned about this alleged bias. And and, and all of this, I think, raises questions about uh, what the, the role of government is when it comes to regulating the internet and internet speech. Uh, and my claim has been for a while that uh, even if I was convinced on the, the claim that uh, these companies will hate conservatives and are taking down their content. That, uh, nonetheless, uh, that 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 behavior doesn't call out for increased regulation and oversight, despite what some conservatives these days seem to think. So, I would add to what Matthew said, but first of all, I would say that the uh, oversight board part actually uh, has some requirements to it. One of which is that I say now that uh, anything I say in the next hour or so is my own opinion. It does not reflect uh, the opinion of the oversight board. Uh, and therefore, you should just take it from me that it's me, not uh, – I don't even know what it would mean at this point for the oversight board to have opinions because it's just starting up. But certainly, I have opinions about stuff. I'm not even sure everyone else uh, – I don't think everyone else shares those. So there's a number of ways to talk about conservative bias. And Matthew, I agree with what Matthew said. Um, one thing I keep coming back to, I mean, I think part of it's anecdotes and experience, something that somebody gets people gets something taken down. Uh, sometimes it's an error and it's put back up immediately. Uh, there's a sense of being uh, persecuted and that, that sort of thing that's uh, unfortunately in our, for some time in our politics has been a, uh, uh, highly effective kind of political claim. Uh, however, I have my own experiences too, and I use Facebook. And what I find at Facebook, for example, in the last couple of weeks, one of my friends from an earlier stage in my life referred to the governor of Kentucky as the Antichrist. Now, it seems to me that if you're going to censor something in a, a religious uh, area of the country, referring to the governor himself as an Antichrist would be something that would get hit. And yet it showed up in my uh, news feed. The other thing is that I read a great deal of um, material in my news feed about uh, uh, 
COVID-19, about studies or reflections on the various studies about it. Uh, a lot of it's quite skeptical. A lot of it's quite skeptical about the original study and the results it had for the policy. And again, I don't even get warnings about that. And uh, it's certainly not taken down because I, the people that put it up would have let everyone know. So um, if there is censorship, there's also a great deal of things that get through it. I mean, but let's pause for a moment on the idea of censorship. I think in terms of suppression, only governments can censor. Uh, and uh, it's a good distinction to make. Facebook, as Matthew mentioned, can take things down. Uh, because they're a private company and Cato is not required to bring anyone, uh, into the Hayek Auditorium. It can, we can choose who we want to be there when it's open. Um, so there's all of that. Uh, and I think actually th there is certainly, uh, a reality that Facebook can do what it wants to, but I think they also, for business reasons, want to have as many people on the platform as possible. So they, and they have to have content moderation to achieve that goal. So they also want the content moderation to be, uh, legitimate. Now, one way to do that is to publish your rules, which the community standards, uh, are their rules. And then you have them uh, applied in a consistent, neutral fashion. And that's what conservatives have denied. I think they believe that uh, when they get taken down, they haven't necessarily violated a rule, but that there's, in fact, a lot of discretion involved. And that essentially people here in Menlo Park uh, or nearby are uh, all a bunch of liberals and they don't like the speech and they take it down. So the oversight board is an attempt to provide a bit of process on that, right? So that the community standards uh, perhaps will be interpreted more consistently. The process itself will be more transparent. The appeals will be open to them, uh, to anyone who feels that their uh, speech has been taken down wrongly. Uh, but there's this idea that I think that uh, you know, someone's going to reach into the process and not just at Facebook, but at Google and elsewhere and manipulate it for political reasons. The last thing I would say about this for a while is, you know, people out here aren't terribly political. Uh, they seem to be concerned about business mostly to me and to building stuff and making these stand, the, the term standing up is ubiquitous here, which usually means standing up a business. So I think it's vital not to think about what goes on here in the same way as what goes on in D.C., where everything is much more political and people think about political tactics and so on uh, in, in the work they do. Uh, here, it seems to me that while they are correct, there's, uh, you know, it, it's Northern California and it's a very liberal place. Mark Zuckerberg himself said that. Um, the politics is not such a dominant activity for every day, everyone in everyday life. As we talk about conservatives saying that they have been censored online, it it makes me think there's a there's a joke that went around Twitter, a tweet, and so I just pulled it up, and it says the conservative says I have been censored for my conservative views. You were conservative. You were censored for wanting lower taxes. No, not those views. So deregulation. Ha, no, not those views either. So which views exactly? Oh, you know the ones. And and that seems to be in in almost every instance where there's been a high-profile 
conservative, and I say that in quotes, um, talking about how they were censored on Facebook or Twitter, when you peel it back, it seems to be that they were saying – in a lot of cases, they were saying racist or homophobic or sexist stuff or they were doxing people or you know, stuff that's not, that's not conservatism. It's more like – I mean borderline hate speech, which isn't – and so is this is – this, is that fair um, and fair in the sense of like an accurate characterization of a lot of what gets – pulled off of platforms or gets people kicked off of platforms? And if it is, is it just a case that among people who call themselves conservatives, that kind of speech tends to be more common than among people who are on the left? So this is less about censoring political views and simply saying like, look, you can't be racist on our platforms. I think it's fair to say that um, a number of the most high profile uh, takedowns from, from the most prominent platforms uh, have included people that were not taken down because of um, they were arguing for increased localism, lower taxes, and less regulation. Uh, so a number of uh, people come to mind, such as you know Milo Yiannopoulos or Alex Jones. And uh, when when I think people hear these kind of voices, they don't think of uh, libertarian economics. They think about uh, derogatory things said about uh, minorities as well as um, conspiracy theories. Now, I think Aaron's made an interesting point, which is you can take a look at that and think it's saying something kind of interesting about modern conservatism, that uh, modern conservatism is so broad that uh, it includes people who make these kind of uh, pronouncements and claims. Uh, however, something I do want to stress, though, is that uh, the left has their own version of uh, complaints about these these companies too. Um, when, when I talk about this to to Cato interns and other and other students, I, I I cite a letter that the the World Socialist website sent to Google saying that Google was systematically taking down left wing uh, and socialist views. Uh, there have been complaints about Facebook and its treatment of Black Lives Matter uh, and and other and other groups. And, and I think that reveals something kind of interesting, which is that uh, it's easy to to spot uh, perceived bias or discrimination when you're on the receiving end of it. Uh, but, but, but importantly, I, I think it's, it, we should stress that these companies are put between a rock and a hard place here, which is uh, the, the more they try to explain uh, how they go about making these decisions, the more opportunities their critics have to, to criticize them. But of course, the less they, uh, they, talk about this, um, then they're accused of not being transparent. Uh, and, and I think it, even if, you know, Aaron mentioned hate speech, uh, e even content that you or rules that you would think everyone would agree to can raise difficult issues. So one one brief example, and then I know John will want to jump in. But, you know, if, if we were all sitting together and trying to come up with a, a new website that was going to compete with Facebook, we might say, well, we want it to be family friendly, we want as most number of visitors as possible, but we don't want pornography or, or beheading videos or things like that. So let's come up with a, a guide for content. We might say, well, let's ban images of nude children. And I think most people instinctively think, yeah, that sounds like a good policy for some kind of Facebook competitor. Uh, and you implement the policy. But then I, I'm sure listeners and all of you will be familiar of uh, that that photograph on the Vietnam War uh, in the wake of a napalm attack of the these the children running to the photographer and one of them is naked. Uh, I think it's fair to say it's one of the most famous images of the 20th century. And this isn't a hypothetical. Facebook was tasked with dealing with this issue. And initially, uh, I believe that the photo was taken down. Um, so, so more than anything, I, I try to stress to people that, that content moderation is hard and that even good sounding rules can uh, result in gray areas and, and ultimately decisions have to be made. 
Uh, the other thing you should, that should be added to this, particularly in the United States, I think, is that uh, even though it's not correct, according to the Supreme Court and much in our political culture, I think people sort of start out with a First Amendment point of view that uh, if it's uh, protected speech under the First Amendment, that it should be protected on these uh, platforms. And that's just not true. Now, it may well be the case, as I said, for business reasons and other reasons that the platforms may wish to have a very broad uh, protections for speech. But it's not going to be the same as uh, the Supreme Court uh, and what the Supreme Court has supported uh, more generally. Um, I will say that I don't know uh, if there's been bias against conservatives. I don't know if there's been bias against liberals. I don't know if there's been bias against left, people on the left. I mean, I just, um, I have opinions about that. But what I would note is that uh, this board and then other uh, efforts at other places, I presume, are an attempt to provide uh, some kind of way of adding process to this. So if you have, if there is a takedown that's wrong, or if the takedown that runs against um, the community standards, or as Matthew was mentioning, if there's a tough decision that has to be made, and then it's not just going to be made by Facebook staff, it's, it's going to be made publicly, it's going to be made by people who have, as you look at the board members come from a, a wide variety of backgrounds. And so there's some appeal. There's a real appeal to that. And uh, I would expect that uh, people who, I would hope that people who uh, are persuadable will look at that and say, maybe this process can work in particular because the I think the alternative is uh, U.S. Congress or U.S. Uh, regulatory agencies to become involved in the United States, at least, or European uh, uh, agencies already are involved. And uh, that is a <laughs> that's a libertarian insight, I think, that, and hope is widely uh, shared, which is that government uh, involvement in freedom of expression is just not going to end well. In general, though, it's interesting because going back to some of your original points, John, you said a few minutes ago that that sure they might be they might be biased, they might not be biased, but in general, given the size and effect that these companies have on our discourse, are conservatives and I guess as we said, some people on the left correct to be concerned about that power? Uh, I mean, I mean, basically, if Google decides to derank your business, they can destroy your business. And if they decide to derank your page on its sort of effect on political speech, they can drastically affect the American political conversation. And I mean, I think conservatives might be thinking, as you pointed out, that as conservatism, and we said this in the episode that uh, went up last week, which we did with our colleague Paul Matsko on, on right-wing radio in the 60s, but conservatism is sort of a persecution movement, and they definitely feel that the, the Silicon Valley is not on their side. So even though it's not as political as you said, John, which I completely buy, uh, we do live in the age of Trump. Where, where there are people definitely in these organizations that probably view Trump as essentially Hitler uh, and that his reelection would be a, an apocalyptic event. So is it really beyond you know imagination that, say, Google or, or Twitter or Facebook would just subtly derank uh, pro-Trump speech in an effort to what they perceive as save the country? 
No, it's not unimaginable. I guess I, the way I would put it is to do people across the political spectrum have reasonable concerns? Now, some concerns are unreasonable uh, and maybe paranoid or whatever. But, you know, the whole situation, do they have uh, reasonable concerns? The answer is yes. That you can imagine that. Consider, I mean, just one element of all of this. Uh, in fact, if you look at Elizabeth Warren or Donald Trump or uh, several other presidential candidates, they were sharp critics of the tech companies. They not, not so much on content moderation, though some of that, but on antitrust issues and so on. Now, these people are making these cases. They're running for office. It then becomes plausible to think that one of these tech companies, uh, with its interests so deeply involved down the line, uh, would use their power over the platform to intervene there, to uh, make it harder for those criticisms to be heard. Now, on the other hand, this is, seems to me to be, if you look at uh, the uh, Facebook advertising policy for uh, uh, candidates for office, which was much co- very controversial, and people wanted uh, these uh, ads to be cleansed of all falsehoods and so on. Facebook decided that uh, they followed the federal broadcasting standard, which was that uh, they acted like, you know, TV executives have no uh, right to, and the term is used in broadcasting law, to censor these ads from Donald Trump or any of, anybody else running for president. You have to show it. And that's the Facebook policy, too. So it strikes me that you can the companies can do things to try to build confidence that these kinds of potential problems actually uh, uh, are mitigated, if not uh, mitigated for reasonable people, mitigated for people that are persuadable. And I think uh, the oversight board is like that. Uh, at other places, you could say, well, look at Reddit. What you have is a decentralized system there, and that helps with these kinds of issues. You don't have a company, you know, they, there are centralized standards and centralized powers for that company, but it's they're rarely used. And it would be very hard for the company to actually act on its economic interest in the content moderation area. They'd have to get rid of a bunch of content moderators, or they would have it would be fairly clear what they were doing. So, yes, there are potential issues. These kinds of Issues are throughout human life in a way, uh, but what you're seeing is uh, people responding that. The other side of this is people call for political accountability to, as a response to those issues. And my question is, you know, is that I think I'm talking to a, a favorable audience here. You know, what what are you going to get if you get if politics dominates this, if government acts? Uh, it'll be accountable in a certain way, but I don't think it's going to be necessarily accountable to everyone, to the general uh, user of Facebook, Google, or Reddit. Uh, so that's where we are. It's a, it, it's not a perfect situation, but we're beginning to see these uh, ways of responding that deal with these kinds of potential problems. As we've said, it sounds like lots and lots of people across the ideological spectrum and lots of people in Washington have grievances, have aired many grievances about these tech companies and platforms and censorship and imagined censorship and so on. And the thing that they all seem to point to is Section 230, which is to blame for everything wrong with digital speech. 
So what is what is Section 230 and should we get rid of it? I'm I'm happy to to take this, but I'm sure John will be able to uh, fill in the gaps that I miss here. So uh, yes, as as Aaron pointed out, the the piece of legislation here that that is often cited is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, uh, which was passed by Congress in 1996, and it's uh, I would say widely cited but often misunderstood. And and I think the best way to understand it is to understand what came before it and why uh, representatives Chris. Cox and uh, his colleague, uh, Representative Ron Wyden, felt the need to write it. Uh, as as the internet is developing, uh, th- there might be you know, some listeners old enough to remember uh, some of these names. There were internet service providers like uh, CompuServe and Prodigy and AOL. And as uh, they were developing, there were numerous fora, uh, bulletins, newsletters. Uh, you could subscribe to uh, a bunch of these, as well as uh, take part by offering content. And I suppose it was only a matter of time before there were allegations of defamatory content and who was responsible for that. Uh, so in 1991, a federal judge considered uh, a case called uh, Cubby v. CompuServe, where there was an allegation made that uh, defamatory content had been posted on one of these uh, newsletters, I believe it was, run by uh, the internet service provider CompuServe. And there the, the judge said, well, you know, these these internet service providers are, are basically uh, the digital equivalents of news vendors. They're kind of like newsstands. Uh, and because they don't engage in much content moderation at all, you, you can't hold uh, the news vendor uh, or the bookstore liable. Similarly here, you can't hold uh, CompuServe liable for uh, third-party content. Uh, a few years later, though, there's a New York Supreme Court case that comes to a different outcome. Uh, this was a case involving Stratton Oakmont, which is of um, Wolf of Wall Street fame and uh, a uh, and, and Prodigy. And and here, because uh, Prodigy actually did engage in uh, some content moderation, uh, the the judge uh, in that case said, well, here, actually, when it comes to defamatory content uh, and uh, uh, Prodigy is actually the publisher of that and can be held liable. Uh, and this, this, uh, these, these two cases uh, gave rise to what's called the moderator's dilemma, which is this burgeoning internet industry. Uh, people in it had to consider, well, do we engage in a hands-off approach and be considered some kind of distributor? Um, or do we engage in content moderation and then face potential liability for uh, content posted by third parties? And, and neither one of these is is a great option uh, for, I hope, what are obvious reasons. But, but firstly, uh, as we've discussed before, uh, internet sites don't want to just adopt a uh, free-for-all First Amendment world. They do want to have moderation of things like uh, pornography and um, images of, of violence, uh, content that's protected by the First Amendment, but nonetheless might not be family-friendly. Um, but secondly, of course, the, the, the prodigy approach, the publisher approach isn't great because it means that to avoid liability, companies are going to have to spend many, many resources screening every piece of content to make sure that they can't be sued. Uh, so what, what what rose out of this is a Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, uh, and it provides uh, what's called a, a sword and a shield. And I'll just briefly mention um, the first is a liability uh, protection. Uh, so Section 230C1, for those uh, keeping along, uh, which is basically a, a, an explicit rejection of the Prodigy case, saying that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of, of third-party content. Uh, but an important part of uh, the, the law is also 
the protection uh, for content moderation, saying that uh, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access for for whatever reason you want, even if that content is uh, First Amendment protected. Uh, so the SWORD uh, is this uh, Section 230 permission to go ahead and moderate content as much as you want. And the SHIELD is this uh, liability protection saying that uh, companies such as uh YouTube, Facebook uh, aren't considered publishers of third-party content. Uh, I want to stress before wrapping up, though, this is not just a piece of law for big tech, as it's called. Uh, This protects, uh, of course, uh, and and applies to uh, companies that are household names, but but anyone who runs a a little blog with a comment section uh, also enjoys uh, Section 230 protection. So what I would add to that, uh, that's, first of all, an excellent uh, account of that. I always get those cases messed up. I can remember who's involved, but which which is named. So Matthew did a very good job on that. Um, The the thing I would add to it is the part about, I guess, the sword, which is uh, Section 230 empowered the companies to deal with a wide range of speech. Uh, And what I think you see here is uh, over time, and and it took a while, these are uh, companies trying to develop legitimate institutions for carrying that out. They certainly have the power to do so. But in time, particularly Facebook, but others will will face this issue. They wanted to, to, uh, the wielding of the sword, they wanted to have a certain amount of legitimacy. And so that's what and the great thing I hope to see with that is a kind of Hayekian process of trial and error and trying different kinds of institutions, not just at Facebook, but at other places also. So we can learn something about uh, how to do this uh, process, which is actually somewhat new, uh, I think, uh, in the history. So uh, the, the great threat to that, I would say, and it'll be no surprise to the listeners of this uh, to this pro- podcast, I, I'm really, you know, I don't want to see government regulation coming in and having a uh, kind of uh, effect of creating only one model, uh, even if it's a Facebook model, even if it's the oversight board. I, I don't want to see one model imposed because people are negotiating with regulators. And I think that is something we really need to keep in mind, in part because the people that usually worry about regulation uh, are uh, maybe not going to be represented in policy discussions about these kinds of issues. There's a book by Jeff Kossif called 26 Words That Created the Internet that is about about this Section 230. And it's, it's an interesting title, though, because it's a very strong statement. Uh, what does the internet look like if this 230 had never been created? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, and I think uh, yeah, Jeff's book... Uh, is might might be the victim of this this publisher uh, tendency to try and come up with catchy but maybe inaccurate headlines. But here, I think actually the 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 headlines fairly accurate. Uh, the the twenty six words that, that Trevor alludes to that are the title um, are the is section two thirty c one basically. And what the internet looks like without it is an internet where uh, social media as we know it uh, doesn't exist. Um, in part because there are no uh, there, there aren't enough resources uh, to screen every single piece of content 
that is uh, uploaded to these websites. I'm just for for example, I might last I checked, it was something like um, I don't have the exact citation in front of me, but when I was last looking at this, I think it's accurate to say that something like. 400 hours of footage are uploaded to YouTube every minute or something like this. Um, even with billions and billions of dollars, it's just not conceivable to curate that content before it goes live in, in, a, in a feasible way. Uh, I want to stress that there are some scholars out there, um, Jennifer Huddleston, who uh, with her colleague at the time, uh, Brent Scrope at Mercatus, uh, did write a paper arguing that something like Section 230 might have emerged uh, absent uh, it being passed. Uh, and that's an interesting uh, hypothesis, uh, but I think uh, it, it can it can be criticized. Um, but if, if you want to think of a world today without Section 230, just imagine uh, a world in which a internet company or anyone who uh, hosts content on the internet could potentially be held liable for content they don't post. Um, so and so Reddit, becomes, Reddit would not exist, basically. Yeah, um, so there's no YouTube, um, there's no Twitter, there's no Facebook. Um, and you know, look, I, you can have criticisms of all of these companies, I'm sure, right? Uh, but I think, and and Lord knows that I have my um, concerns with some of these these companies too, but I would say that uh, what, what we've experienced in the last couple of decades with the emergence of the internet and especially the ability of people to uh, access it all over the world is is a revolution in speech that it hasn't been paralleled since the, the invention of the movable type printing press. Uh, it's an incredibly liberating force, and uh, I think we should we should be aware that these companies will sometimes make mistakes with their own content moderation rules. But uh, Section two hundred and thirty may may upset some people, but I, I would argue that it's it's far better than any alternative I've seen. So the, I would add to that point Matthew made, which is uh, even if, we we talked about bias, we talked about suppressing speech. But what needs to be kept in mind by everybody is whatever, you know, I think we'll have a legitimate process. The, in the big picture, the amount of speech that is actually controversial in terms of community standards, uh, the work of Josh Tucker at NYU has shown this, is, is really immensely small. So even if the nightmares are right, right, it's going to be a, a relatively small amount of speech that's affected. Uh, and it, it, we will hope it will be legitimately taken down because it violates the community standards. But there's all sorts. Gatekeeping is not going to return in any strong way. It's going to be very much at the margins of this these platforms. And you're going to have, all again, I come back to my own experience. My friend from childhood, he's on there. He's talking about. Churches being closed in Kentucky, he doesn't like this because of the COVID regulations and that the governor is the Antichrist. I mean, you know, he's getting his say, right? And I, we're still going to have a fantastic. My concern is that I'm, the reason, one of the reasons I'm engaged with this oversight board is we get a lot of benefits from that. This is new and great. And we've we've got to deal with the cost or you're going to get a lot of government regulation that I think will really take away a lot of the benefits. I just don't trust that kind of process for dealing with freedom of expression. I want to ask about something that just to clarify again, because if you if you read Matthew's work in particular and, and follow him on Twitter, uh, Matthew loves all the myths about Section 230. They're his favorite thing on the planet, but it's probably one of the biggest ones is a subsidy. 
Mm. So it's called a subsidy by people like Josh Hawley and I think Ted Cruz. Uh, what is that argument and, and is it correct? Well, thank you for making me sound like I'm really fun at parties, Trevor. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> he is fun at parties. I can attest to that. I, I, I do have real hobbies, I promise. Um, yes. So um, anyone who's been paying attention to this will know that there are a few uh, persistent myths about, about Section 230. Um, one is that there's this big difference between platforms and publishers. Um, but, but the one that, that Trevor cited is, I would argue, probably the most clever um, and I hope, well, I don't, maybe hope's the wrong word, but I, 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 I wouldn't be surprised if whoever came up with this, um, enjoyed some salary bump. Um, there is a argument that you'll hear, uh, especially among those, um, on the right, but sometimes, um, on the left that section 230 is the equivalent of a government handout or a subsidy. And the argument goes something like absent section 230, uh, these companies would have to spend millions, if not billions of dollars, uh, so far on litigation. And because of that, because Section 230 protects them from that process, we should consider Section 230 a big government uh, tech uh, industry-friendly uh, subsidy, um, which I think is a clever turn of phrase, uh, but I think it's it's mistaken for, for the obvious reason. I, I just take the approach that you can look up subsidies in bills uh, and budgets where they are outlined item by item of who's getting what. Um, but but secondly, and one of the reasons I, I, I talk about this is it's not the case that absent Section 230 that, that Twitter and Facebook would have to spend a lot of money on court cases. It's that it wouldn't exist. Uh, and and I think you can actually make the, the argument, uh, and actually I think the liberal argument that, uh, that others have made, which is that, look, um, Section 230 actually... Uh, is a rather, uh, if, if you think about it, a rather conservative uh, piece of law in the sense that it just says, look, you're responsible for what you post. So it doesn't say, it doesn't get rid of, you know, libel law or it doesn't get rid of uh, any of the, the the content people are worried about. If Look, if you post illegal content or if you uh, defame someone, you certainly can get in trouble for that. Um, Section 230 doesn't change that. You are responsible. Uh, and and I think that's probably the, the right approach to have to it. Um, but nonetheless, you'll still see many people making this kind of argument. So I'd like to make a point that's uh, a little bit uh, good follows. It's about Section 230, and it's for libertarianism.org podcast. you got to say something positive about and hopeful for libertarians. And here's the point I would like to make. Think about Section 230 and compare it to broadcasting law. So broadcasting law comes around, about, and it's about radio in the 1920s. The government, it's a collectivist age. The government's doing all sorts of great things in the 20s and 30s and thereafter. So it was very uh, uh, possible in the 1920s for the government to say, look, we own the airways and these airways have to be regulated to make them work uh, in the public interest. And so you end up with the fairness doctrine, various things, but you end up with a heavy regulation of broadcasting and all sorts of problems that go with that. 1995, an interesting period, because in my view, the 1980 to 2000 period is an era of liberal reform in which both parties came to the view that, you know what, maybe we want the economy to work better. We, we, and if it's left to itself more, maybe it will. And so instead of claims to own the Internet by the government or claims to have heavy regulation of the Internet by the government, 
compared to the 1920s. What you get is Section 230, and Section 230 says, well, we want the Internet to really develop, and we want to take away some of the claims of people. We want to have a nice framework so that this uh, people can create these companies and can do what they want to on there within the normal responsibilities of defamation and so on that Matthew, in- that Matthew mentions. My point here is that 230 is an indication of what actually can happen when you get some loosening up. You have an era of libertarian or liberal reform, which we may well have again. And it's it's crucial. I mean, we're having a debate now, but we're not talking. They're trying to get back to the 1920s. It's a different debate than starting with a kind of government ownership of uh, media, and then you're trying to deal with regulations at the margin. That's an impossible thing, and you end up at the Supreme Court saying, yeah, you can have broadcasting licenses. Yeah, you can have speech licenses. The starting point, I would say, is because libertarians and others who saw the value of free markets in the 1980s, had a powerful effect on everyone, and there before you get 230. So keep your chin up. It's There'll be a good time again, and this Section 230 and the Internet you have before you is something that shows what the real effect of arguing for liberty, I think. We touched a bit on one of the concerns, but I want to go back to it for a second to tee up this question, which is it's one thing if we're talking about you know, some small zine decides they don't want to publish your article because it doesn't align with their views, or even like a major newspaper won't run your op-ed because it doesn't it doesn't fit the the take of their editorial board. But Google controls almost all internet search. YouTube is if you want to distribute videos on the internet. Um, unless you can, you know, somehow get into Netflix, YouTube is basically it. If you can't be on YouTube, your video is not going to get much distribution. Social media, which is the dominant way that the world communicates with each other now, is controlled by Twitter or various platforms that Facebook owns. Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and so on. And and so if these if these companies decide as we we touched on earlier to, you know, pull the plug on you. There's not really, there are alternatives, but in many cases, they're not meaningful alternatives. They're alternatives that are are quite bad compared to the big platforms as far as the reach that you can actually have. And so it does seem to be the case that getting government involved in setting their internal content moderation policies is a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for politicization and people using, you know, the the law and these these regs and rules to punish political enemies and shut down political speech that they're not a fan of. So be every bit as bad as what people imagine the platforms are already doing now. But another way that people are increasingly approaching it is to say, okay, maybe we don't want to tell Facebook how to manage what content is on the platform, but Facebook doesn't need to be as dominant as it is. And so if we institute antitrust proceedings against them, or we force these platforms to essentially be smaller and create more diversity, then we get back to a world that looks more like the op-eds in the newspapers, where you can find another platform that might not be as good, but is at least close to as good to put your speech on. Is that a better way to approach these sorts of worries to just say, like, maybe these platforms have gotten too big? I, I wouldn't take that approach. Um, and I mean, you could probably dedicate a whole podcast to talking about the antitrust issues. Uh, but first, I would just say, um, 
I find a lot of the antitrust concerns just slightly misguided because they seem to mistake market dominance for monopoly. And I think Aaron's right to say, look, you'd have to be naive to not know that Facebook is the the, the social media giant, um, but it's not the the only one. And and there were a lot of people who were upset that uh, certain views were being uh, stifled online, so they set up their own. Uh, you can go to a white supremacist uh, social media site if you want. They're out there. Um, dare I say you could actually Google uh, these companies and and find ways to to go there. Um, BitChute is a is a a similar competitor to to YouTube. So first, I, I don't think we should um, confuse market dominance with monopoly. This is like um, saying we should have antitrust against Starbucks because it's uh, the most dominant you know uh, uh, coffee store in in America. Uh, but but more importantly, I think the the it's fundamentally confused uh, because. Uh, Facebook is competing with Google. These are competitors. This is a market that if you have to think about how these companies are making their money. Um, if you're worried about content moderation, though, let's accept that, yes, they're monopolies and there should be antitrust. Um, it takes certain resources to do content moderation at scale, and we should anticipate there to be more mistakes if these companies don't have um, the same resources they do now. Uh, for example, just, just one example, uh, many listeners will be familiar that uh, with the the Christchurch, New Zealand shooting, where a, a gunman uh, committed a, a mass shooting in uh, some mosques in, in Christchurch, New Zealand, and live streamed this this atrocity um, with a helmet camera. And of course, you know, social media companies all over the world were you know rushing to try and take this uh, content down. And uh, of course, there were there were false positives in that. Um, I believe it was someone at YouTube. Uh, I think it was who said we were just willing to embrace. Uh, false positive to get this this video down. Uh, now, look, maybe AI will get cheaper and cheaper and better and better. But at the moment, uh, dealing with content like that uh, is uh, something that requires resources. Uh, and if you if you break these companies up, I think you'll just make a lot of the content moderation debate worse because uh, companies will struggle to be as good as it as they are now. So I again a slightly different directions on Matthew's good comments there. Uh, I wonder to what extent at this point that uh, companies can actually take things down as an o- just an open question, right? I'll give you an example. The other night uh, I was reading, as I do occasionally, President Trump's Twitter uh, feed, and I can't, he referred to and linked to another uh, uh, video that I followed and the video had been taken down. So naturally I turned to Matthew and said, uh, did you did you download it or did you screen shoot it before it was taken down? Instead of sending me that, Matthew sent me another link on the same platform where the video was put back up. So there's there's that issue, the a more broader issue, which has complicated issues, I think, which is that the question of whether anything can actually be taken off the internet, right? Uh, things show up somewhere else now. The cost there, I think, or the cost to the speaker, or maybe it's a benefit for the public, is that they'll show up at a site that contains generally stigmatized speech. And, you know, there's uh, there's a reason speech is stigmatized often, and uh, that uh, is something, you know. How, what would worry me, though, is the false positives, because I know of one case at the beginning of the pandemic that uh, was up on... Twitter, I guess. 
and was uh, was taken down and ended up on a site that uh, somewhat plausible, somewhat legitimate, but also has conspiracy theories. And therefore, uh, in moving from Twitter to this site, there was a real stigma attached to the piece. And I think a lot of people thought, yeah, this is probably incorrect or inexpert or whatever, but it's not speech that should be suppressed. So my question here is, why isn't there a intermediary that can make money, the website, easy entry, an intermediary that takes these kinds of uh, false positives and keeps them up and would attract attention and pay for it by advertising? Is it that there's not enough non-stigmatized, non-properly stigmatized material to support the site? Or will there be in the future? And so on. I just, I wonder, like the libertarian, we are libertarians, we are, you know, if people are left to their own devices, will they come up with arguments that deal with this false positive, the sti- improper stigmatization of speech? Uh, yeah, I, uh, a thought occurred to me while, while John was speaking, as this sometimes happens. Um, and I think this is an interesting question for, for liberals to consider. Um, and, and we're, of course, you know, at Cato, part of the liberal family. Um, I, I think we, we should th- view this debate as um, part of a larger debate about what, what's the best way to do a speech that we don't like. Um, and as, as classical liberals, I think we are loath to embrace government. But if, if, if Trevor and I were, were walking down uh, the street, which, you know, I, I hope will happen in not too long, uh, and we see um, someone wearing an SS uniform handing out copies of Mein Kampf on a sidewalk, there are a couple of options available to us. We could just uh, ignore him and just keep on going. Uh, we could uh, stop to debate uh, the Nazi. Uh, we could try and shame the Nazi. We could um, take photos and send them around to try and make it dangerous for uh, or unpleasant for the Nazi to speak out in public. But what we couldn't do is call the cops as long as this Nazi is, is standing on a public sidewalk, uh, he's not engaged in anything illegal. Not in America, uh, at least. I think you could do Not that in the United States, yes. Um, this this would not be happening for very long in, in parts of Europe, that's for sure. Um, now, if, if you were um, an, an atheist, say, uh, and you walked into a Christian bookstore with copies of uh, The God Delusion or whatever and started uh, harassing customers, there would be absolutely no legal issue whatsoever for, for the shop to say, look, get out of here. Um, and I think we, we should we have to mention the fact that that a lot of people I think mistakenly think of Facebook like the sidewalk, um, not the not the Christian bookstore, uh, and, and that's 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 a problem that I think we we need to uh, need to address and be better at, at clarifying. But nonetheless, um, that you'll see some people saying, yeah, but maybe maybe people should be more tolerant of views they don't like in in private uh, private platforms. And look, that's um. But but what I wish people would appreciate is that people are going to come to different decisions about that. Some people are more tolerant of people who disagree with them than others. Uh, and I think John's right that um, that does seem to be a, an opening, perhaps for uh, some kind of intermediary. Although uh, the the inner economist in me thinks if there was such an opportunity and demand, it would have happened already. Uh, so there's probably a reason why not. But that's something to consider. John, I have a question. Mostly for you, but but Matthew might want to weigh in, uh, given that we, we've worked on campaign finance issues for a while, and, and you for much longer than me, and we wrote a, a excellent book on campaign finance, and, and now you're working on this content moderation stuff. 
in general, like in your in your career, kind of looking at political speech and how this stuff sort of works together, these people's viewpoints on political speech, how does the current this current debate regarding internet and social media platforms sort of relate to uh, philosophically to campaign finance debate and the work that you've done on that? So the, the crucial distinction here is the fundamental one we've discussed, which is campaign finance always involved fairly increasingly intricate regulations of uh, spending money on speech that had the tendency to suppress speech or to censor speech, actually. Uh, this involves private companies. And so that's the sort of gate that I think of as mattering. Once it's private, the, the things change. I will say there are some cultural matters, I would put it, that in my career up till now have concerned me. Um, and I will mention two of them uh, from, as Matthew properly says, a liberal perspective. One is that uh, there's not a lot of self-consciousness about talking about falsehoods in this regard. And you, you, you would see that in uh, campaign finance too. People seem to be concerned about money, but when they started talking, you realize they were outraged because somebody had said something false, which uh, often was something just controversial that disagreed with their views. Uh, in this context, because there are no First Amendment protections in the uh, private realm, people feel free to uh, talk a great deal about uh, falsehoods. Now, I think the di actual distinction here uh, it was for somebody like Mark Zuckerberg is the difference between hoaxes and conspiracies, outlandish conspiracy theories, and then pl other political speech that's controversial. Uh, so he thinks when he talks about fake news or whatever, or the company does, or other companies do, they're talking about uh, conspiracy, you know, things that are really out there. Uh, but I think it, the conversation drifts and you can't really tell what's being talked about and what's being taught, you know, everything that's false or that someone deems as being false and all of the disinformation, misinformation. Uh, too often, I think, in my experience, at least, uh, what I uh, find a little troubling is that people talk about these matters of speech uh, in ways that don't recognize that, uh, you know, there's a speech element here. We're talking about something that, uh, you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be protected in every instance, but it's something very valuable. It's not just that we go, the companies or anyone is supposed to go around getting rid of false stuff because there's not a, a I would like to see more self-awareness from everyone that I might be wrong. Uh, the stuff I think are lies could be not lies, right? Or at least could be more controversial. So that's part of it. You saw that. The second thing is the uh, kind of bleeding and uh, slippery slopes involved in speed chair. Uh, again, you see that. Um, and I'm, again, I'm not talking, I'm talking about my own opinion and not the oversight board or Facebook. Uh, but in general, you see, I would like to see more awareness of the dangers of uh, legislate or having community standards or whatever against hate speech, right? Uh, certainly the companies are well within their powers to drive it off the platform. But then the question becomes, where are the borders? What are the, the, the lines to be drawn? And a bit more of an awareness of uh, that these 
uh, lines can be blurry. We can be on a slippery slope. And it, people aren't thinking five and 10 years down the line. What are these standards going to look like, uh, perhaps, in, down the line? And we'll end up uh, taking down speech that people right now would say, well, I don't like that speech, but I think it should be heard. And when I'm, I should be clear about this. I'm not saying that the American uh, Supreme Court standard is the right one here at all. I'm just saying that I think the thing you so often saw in campaign finance was people, money is not speech, right? There was no awareness that speech was even implicated. I think because of the situation after 2016 and because people became very concerned about democracy and authoritarianism and a bunch of issues, right? There's, um, you were in a situation where uh, people were, were, they were looking at the things that were making them concerned and they weren't drawing balances. And I think as we go forward, uh, not just at Facebook again or anywhere, but we need to try to keep those balances and those trade-offs in mind and the and government regulation or regulation in general that tends to uh, slide as time goes on. And we end, I'm just, as you might guess, I'm worried that at the end of the day, nobody will be particularly evil or particularly malicious and we'll end up uh, regulating speech that should be heard. In our last bit of time left, John, I wanted to ask specifically about the Facebook Oversight Board. And and so maybe you could tell us briefly what that board is intended to do, what you specifically as a member of the board will be doing, and then how the kind of philosophy that we've talked the, – the view of all this that we've just talked about for, for the last 50 minutes, what those kinds of ideas – look like or or I guess the philosophy you'll use when you are making decisions as part of this board? So let me uh, personalize this between me and you. Let You're on Facebook. Let's say you put something, this would never happen actually, by the way, seriously, but let's say that you put something up and you turn around and it gets taken down. And and you look and see it's been taken down. You're informed that it's been taken down because it violates the community standards. Well, you also know that uh, in a few months that uh, I have a right to appeal that. And the appeal doesn't go to Facebook staff, but goes to this new oversight board. So then you do that. Um, you exhaust your appeals at Facebook. Maybe you have, you stop, first stopping point is them, but they refuse your appeal. But you say, I'm, it's not right. So you're asked to go to the oversight board with your appeal because you want to make the case that this did, whatever you posted didn't violate the, the, the standards, the community standards. So, uh, you, you end up interacting with, uh, the staff of the oversight board. They ask you to write a small uh, statement about why you think it uh, the, the appeal is justified and your your uh, material should be put back up. Uh, they add some material. They get some material from Facebook. They look at what you're do what you've done, what the case is, and it's said if the case is significant and difficult, that uh, they then focus on it and send it to the oversight board itself, uh, who, which has uh, four. Uh, uh, co-chairs. 
And ultimately, if the case is going to be heard, uh, a panel of five members are chosen, one of which would be, in your case, from North uh, America. So that might be me, let's just say that these are chosen at random. There's five North American members. So there's no, well, actually, in your case, uh, I would never be on your panel because I, I know you and I could obviously have to recuse myself. But if I didn't know you, um, you would get that. And then the, the decision is, uh, has to be made uh, by this panel of, of uh, five members, whether in fact your material violated uh, the community standards or not. Now, the interesting thing is that the hope is going in is that this will be a unanimous decision, that there will be deliberation that produces consensus. If there, there's a sort of thought that if there's dissents, that they will be included in that statement and perhaps answered, I would guess. Uh, so that would then become a kind of common law for at least Facebook community standards and how they are, you know. And so if you were right and it was wrongly, your, your material was wrongly chosen, it'll be put back up and perhaps also similar material, if it can be identified and it's technically possible, will also be put back up, uh, depending on the situation. But certainly Facebook is bound by its agreements with us and by its agreements in setting up the board to recognize that these decisions are binding. The only other thing I would say is the entire board can review every decision. And if a majority wishes to uh, have the material looked at or the decision looked at by another panel or changes made to make the uh, decision acceptable to a majority, that too can happen. So you've got, the way I would put it, I was reading the pile, there's a lot of procedures here, right? This is, process is the way to legitimacy would be the uh, the banner above the oversight board's uh, uh room or its building. And uh, so there would be all of that. And you could also lose and the material would stay down. But it's an attempt through process to give legitimacy. And, and I would say also probably a consistency. I think some of the problems that uh, people complain about are not so much bias or uh, anything like that. It's, it's a result of consistency. And these kinds of decisions may give the process that will yield more consistency across time. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.